The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. One hundred years ago, May 19th, 1921, President Harding signed into law the Emergency Immigration Act. We'll have a little more on that in just a bit. But speaking of massive migrant tides, no, not the southern border, but the northern border. The U.S.-Canadian border was famously the longest undefended frontier in the world until 2020, uh, when Justin Trudeau butched up and closed it, and it's been shut ever since. But now the walking oxymoron known as Public Health Canada says Canadians will be permitted to leave the country to travel to America Uh, to get a COVID shot that basically they can't get in Canada because getting a COVID shot in Canada is as rare as getting sunburn on a beach in Labrador. The Public Health Agency emphasizes that if you're in, say, Windsor, Ontario, you're only allowed to drive to Detroit to get the shot if you have a note from your doctor. Uh, which itself could take a long time. And you have to come straight back. If you stop at Dollarama to pick up a couple of bargains, you'll be forced to quarantine in a government facility at your own expense for up to two weeks at multi-thousand dollar cost. On the other hand, in America, the COVID shot is free. So there's that. This is the complete implosion of the central tenet of contemporary Canadian identity. To wit... Thanks to the total failure of Justin Trudeau's floppo ministry, Canadians are now forced to go to America for free health care. Let me say that again. Canadians are now forced to go to America for free health care. You can't say Chairman Xi doesn't have a very dry sense of humour. We'll have more Canadian content later with Andrew Lawton. Richard Barnett, a 60-year-old man from Arkansas, is the guy who on January the 6th was photographed with his foot on Nancy Pelosi's desk. For that shocking crime, uh, the worst attack on quote-unquote our democracy since the burning of the White House, uh, Mr. Barnett was held in jail for almost four months because U.S. District Court Judge Beryl Howe denied him bail on the grounds that he was, quote, brazen and, quote, cloaked with entitlement, which are apparently federal crimes now. A couple of weeks ago, the characteristically crap jurist Uh, conceded she'd got the law wrong and released Mr. Barnett pending trial. So he's already served three and a half months for putting his foot on Nancy Pelosi's desk. That's about three weeks per toe. And he's now under pressure to cop a plea under which he would uh, serve seven years in prison. Seven years. That's one year and five months for every toe he placed on Nancy Pelosi's desk. Take it or leave it. If he doesn't like that, they'll throw the book at him. Don't wave that constitution at me. Get real. We're in a post-constitutional order here. Just as Robert Mugabe 
had Zimbabweans arrested for making jokes about his Chinese-made rubber penis. So America now punishes Les Majeste, or brazen entitlement, as Judge Beryl Howell would have it. On a related note... Uh, The New York Attorney General's investigation into the Trump Organization has now gone from a civil matter to a criminal case. As I said last November, uh, when I advised him uh, to leave the country, um, they're determined to put Trump in jail. Meanwhile, the guys who attempted to subvert the 2016 election, uh, that was an actual attack on, quote, unquote, our democracy. Uh, the guys who attempted to subvert that election are all still walking around pending the Durham report. Oh, sorry, I didn't say that right. The Durham report! <laughs> Durham Report! The Durham Report! The Durham Report! The Durham Report! The Durham investigation hit its second anniversary a couple of days ago. The team celebrated with a quiet dinner at their beach house in Tahiti and with renewed press speculation that John Durham may be planning to prepare to move toward arranging to prepare to plan to arrange to interview witnesses. Back in 1944, I remember Durham walking out the door. Mama told me he would get him for sure. He would get him. Comey, Clapper, Brandon, Struck, and Steel. Now I'm gonna read old Durham soon. I'm gonna read old Durham soon. Disheartening you, but did John Durham die of COVID in the third week of March 2020? His fellow special counsels are beginning to notice that he's not doing it right. Robert Ray, who succeeded Ken Starr as independent counsel uh, investigating Bill Clinton a quarter century back, told the Washington Times that. If your investigation hasn't yielded results around the time you hit 18 months, it's a question of diminishing returns. Mr. Ray said the longer it goes on, the less you achieve. You either have it or you don't. 
Oh my God, maybe we've been duped. Maybe it's all a sham. Ah, don't you believe that for a moment. Durham's planning to prepare to move forward, to arrange to prepare to plan to move forward with arranging to plan to prepare to interview witnesses. Maybe as early as, oh, Kamala Harris's second term. Don't touch that dumb. for another Durham Report Watch update on The Mark Stein Show. Okay, so much for the urgent stuff. As I mentioned at the top of the show, today is the centenary of the 1921 U.S. Immigration Act, which introduced the so-called National Origins Formula for Immigration that prevailed until Ted Kennedy overthrew it in 1965. Just to prevent everyone shrieking, RACIST! This early in the show, let's keep it on an intra-European level. The United States government was concerned about unskilled immigrants from southern and eastern Europe and had a preference for immigrants from northern and western Europe whom they thought were more assimilable into the existing U.S. population. And so the immigration laws were changed to maintain the proportions of the population by national origin as determined in the 1910 census. Four years later, they'd adjust it uh, to maintain the national origins proportions of the 1890 census. Was this a controversial bit of legislation like everything is these days? Oh, uh, will that bloke from West Virginia sign on to this? Oh, we have to do a bit of outreach to that nice lady from Maine? No. And they didn't give it a stupid name like the DREAM Act either. The formal title of the law is an act to limit the immigration of aliens into the United States. Holy cow, I can't see Mitt Romney signing on to that. Well, it was a different country, literally. It passed by an overwhelming voice vote in the House, and in the Senate there was only one chap that said nay, James Reed of Missouri, and in those days a corrupt trial lawyer lobby couldn't simply rustle up a judge in the Ninth Circuit to strike the whole thing down. Uh, Back then, believe it or not, it was taken for granted that all sovereign states had the right to determine whom they admitted within their borders. Today, China, Japan, Saudi Arabia and various other countries still take that for granted. Uh, But the peoples of Europe and North America are supposed simply to bleat diversity is our strength and look away. Diversity is our strength has uh, not been historically true. You could ask such modestly diverse populations as Northern Ireland, Fiji, Bosnia, but perhaps they were simply insufficiently diverse, which no one can accuse the new America of. 
since Joe Biden became president, a couple of hundred thousand people a month have simply been walking into the United States across what's laughably known as the southern border. Perhaps that doesn't sound like a lot to you, but it's over two million people a year or the equivalent of a couple of small states, New Hampshire and Vermont, say, to uh, keep it in a part of the world I know well. So if, when... The Democrats abolish the Electoral College and replace it with a simple national vote for president. Certain states will simply be outnumbered by one year's immigration intake. America's population reached 300 million just 15 years ago, 2006. It's expected to hit 500 million a tad after mid-century, 30 years' time, according to the Pew Research chaps. No right-wingers there. Uh, And I'll bet you it gets to 500 million before that. Is that because there's a spectacular baby boom underway? No. As reported just this month, American fertility rates have collapsed, notwithstanding all the exciting pregnant men one reads about and other lively innovations, Americans have never been less interested in having babies. The annual fall in the birth rate is the biggest in U.S. history. So how is it that a population that is well below replacement rate fertility, which is 2.1 births per woman, uh, or per non-binary designated gestational carrier, um, America, instead of 2.1 births, is currently around 1.6. So how is it that a population catastrophically below replacement rate fertility uh, can grow from 300 million to 500 million within half a century? Well, almost all 82%, 82% of that population growth will come from immigrants who've arrived here since 2005 and their progeny. Uh, you can already discern that in the state variations on fertility rates. The lowest states are those with fewest immigrants, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, where the fertility rate is almost as low as the lowest European nations, 1.43, which is what demographers call deathbed demography because no recorded society has ever recovered from that. So a country with collapsed fertility rates is ballooning to 500 million. You do the math. And if you are one of the ever-shrinking number of Americans who's just had a baby, give a thought to what America's going to be like when Junior graduates from uh, transgender and colonialism studies circa 2045. No advanced society in the third decade of the 21st century needs mass immigration. In 1921, we had not yet stripped ourselves of the ability to discuss public policy issues honestly. More of the America a century past in the 100 Years Ago show a little later. The Mark Stein Show presents Andrew Lawton's Canadian Content. Free Palestine, but don't free those alt-right science deniers. Here's Andrew. Thank you, Mark. Today I'm going to take a little bit of a jaunt out to Canada's lovely east coast, specifically to Halifax, Nova Scotia, 
which, as you may remember, was a stop on the very first Mark Stein cruise, which is perhaps why big government has decided to crack down so hard on the city's freedom lovers. The Supreme Court of Nova Scotia has granted an injunction against anti-mask rallies. A group was planning to hold two rallies in Halifax and in Barrington tomorrow, but they have now been cancelled by the organizers following the court's ruling. The province and the chief medical officer of health asked for the injunction. They argued the rally flies in the face of the Health Protection Act and increases the risk of spreading COVID-19. Justice Scott Norton wrote that people attending such rallies show a callous and shameful disregard for the health and safety of their fellow citizens. Nova Scotia Supreme Court at the behest of the Nova Scotia government created a designation for an illegal public gathering to allow for arrests of anyone organizing and participating in a rally to criticize heavy-handed measures such as, oh, I don't know, arresting and targeting those who want to have such rallies. The injunction even went so far as to bar promoting an illegal public gathering via social media or otherwise. So you could actually be arrested if you decided to post on social media that you were planning to get together to tell the government to bugger off. Now this was for quite a large anti-lockdown rally that was scheduled to take place Saturday, one of many across Canada and in fact across the world on this particular weekend. But oddly enough, the government didn't seek an injunction to shut down the nearby pro-Palestine rally, which was taking place a few blocks away. This gathering did not have the heavy hand of state coming down. This gathering did not result in a court injunction. This gathering did not result in the premier of Nova Scotia maligning participants as being part of some far-right conspiracy. There's no question these people don't believe in science. They don't believe in mass vaccines. Uh, this is nothing more than an alt-right group that's, that wants to protest um, things like science. And uh, we're pleased with the decision. Now, Premier Ian Rankin isn't alone in thinking that protests are the prerogative of the alt-right, as he calls it right now. Here is the leader of Canada's Socialist Party, the New Democrats, Jagmeet Singh. I do think that there is uh, an ex connection with people who, who aren't wearing a mask or who aren't following public health guidance and the extreme right. And the idea that folks in the extreme right don't care about people around them, uh, aren't concerned about the safety and well-being of people generally, their neighbors and the people in, in the community, and, and to, to brazenly not follow public health guidelines put people, puts people at risk. And that is, that is something that we've seen with extreme right-wing uh, ideology, putting people at risk, not being concerned about the safety of others, not being concerned about the welfare of others. There is a connection, certainly. Last summer, when people were protesting against supposed racial injustice after the death of George Floyd, it was interesting to see all the double standards from the people who had been telling us to hashtag stay home to save lives, but we're not just encouraging the George Floyd protests, we're actually participating in them. And when they were called on that, a lot of them said, oh, well, it's the summer and we know a little bit more about being outdoors now and so on and so forth. Yet we're now almost a year removed from that. We know a lot more about how safe it is to be outdoors, relatively speaking. Supposedly, we are even more safe now because vaccinations have been ramping up, even in Canada, although it's a little bit of a glacial pace for reasons I've talked about in the past. But at the same time, we now have on this weekend two protests on the exact same weekend. One led predominantly by people on the right, though I will say not exclusively, the other led predominantly by people on the left. And only one receives the ire of the government. 
And that is the protest led by people who want to protest the government itself. Now, if you want to call Israel an apartheid state, if you want to wave Nazi flags, if you want to yell anti-Semitic slurs, that's all fine. There's no COVID if you're doing it in the name of a left-wing cause. But you know what? COVID is absolutely pervasive, so much so that we need a court injunction to suspend your constitutional right to assemble if you're going after government. Back to you, Mark. Thank you, Andrew. The good news for Nova Scotians who think that free societies should be defined by the ability to criticise their government is that if you happen to be outside Nova Scotia, visiting friends in New Brunswick or your auntie on Prince Edward Island or your whip-wielding dominatrix in a Quebec bondage dungeon, the good news is that Nova Scotia may not let you back in. Residents of Nova Scotia outside the province now have to apply to the government for permission to return home. At another level, I don't know how much longer this can go on even in Canada. Despite the best efforts of Fauci and Biden uh, to keep the permanent emergency going uh, south of the border and scaring things up with the Indian variant of the Brazilian mutation of the South Sandwich Islands strain or whatever it is now, uh, nevertheless, much of America has entered the post-COVID era. And same with parts of Europe. Canada's appalling failure on the public health front by whatever metric you use, not least vaccinations and herd immunity, mean that Justin and co. have no choice but to keep extreme lockdown going indefinitely. The fiasco ought to occasion some serious soul-searching on the part of Canadians, but of course it won't. Because even as returning snowbirds from Florida jet back to Toronto to find it's still March 2020, now and forever, the lame maple boosterism of the CBC and co. will ensure that government incompetence on a scale unknown anywhere else in the G7 is never seriously addressed. By the way, after... Uh, last week's Canadian content segment, Bernadette Kyle, a Mark Stein club member from Mississippi, uh, noted your use of the word hypocrisy, Andrew, and thinks this is a waste of energy when it comes to the left. Bernadette says Andrew's use is, quote, hardly rare. So many commentators and callers to talk shows repeatedly refer to as hypocrisy Democrats constantly shifting standards regarding their own behavior. I feel it is overused or even inappropriate when talking about Democrats' speech and behavior. Rather than hypocrisy, surely it is actually standard operating procedure for Democrats to proffer opposing viewpoints uh, to similar situations when it fulfills their purposes. Democrats take opposing positions on many similar situations like a weather vane whirling in a gale, changing in an instant through 180 degrees. They do it to protect themselves and in pursuit of power. The sooner we accept that contradicting themselves is the way of their world, the easier it will be to understand exactly who they are. People whose moral values and standards are dubious and ungrounded. Then, instead of using our energy complaining about hypocrisy, we can perhaps focus on figuring out how to be ready for it and to take preemptive action. What do you say? Well, I don't say anything, Bernadette. I think we're, we're doing a little, uh, a little impromptu Mark's mailbox here. It normally comes 
later in the show, but Bernadette has managed to somehow sneak a question into the Canadian content section. So we're tearing up our format here. We've got a well-honed format uh, that we spent ages running by the focus groups uh, to ensure its maximum effect. And Bernadette has now torn it up instantly and tossed it in the lake like the statue of a Confederate general. Um, But Bernadette says, what do you say? Well, I don't say anything, Bernadette. Um, because it was Andrew, I believe, who brought up the hypocrisy. I don't use hypocrisy in the political sphere. My view of hypocrisy is that of uh, uh, Rochefoucauld, if I remember correctly. Um, I think it was Rochefoucauld who first formulated it, that hypocrisy is the tribute vice pays to virtue. And that's true hypocrisy. And it's not what's going on in politics, which is best explained by an aphorism of our late friend Kathy Shadle. It's different when we do it. That's the left. It's different when we do it. And that's all. It's different when we do it. But maybe Andrew will add his own two bits next week. That's two Canadian bits, obviously, with the Queen on one side and a caribou on the other, and George Washington nowhere in sight. But you can take Andrew's two bits to the bank. Uh, well, no, you can't, actually, because U.S. banks don't want uh, Canadian quarters. Uh, but you get my drift, I hope. Keep up to date with the past on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. Slaughter in Egypt, to martial law in West Virginia, and the wonder of bread? It's May 1921. A hundred years from today. World News Update, the messy aftermath of the Great War continues. The first trial of German soldiers for war crimes has opened in Leipzig. The first man in the dock charged with breaking international law is Sergeant Karl Heinen, the commandant of a prisoner of war camp in Munsterreins in Westphalia, who is accused of brutal treatment of British prisoners of war. Sixteen of his former captives are scheduled to appear as prosecution witnesses. It will be the first time the old soldiers have seen their tormentor since 1915. Portugal's Prime Minister and his cabinet have resigned after a threatened coup by the Portuguese military. Senor Machado had been in office for three and a half months, uh, which is quite long by Portuguese standards. Rioting has erupted in Alexandria. To date, 48 people are dead and another 200 injured. According to a report from the Associated Press, trouble started between, quote, low-class Greeks and natives on Anastasia Street. The cause of their grievance is unknown, but indiscriminate fighting and shooting has now spread to other districts. The Republic of China has filed a protest against Great Britain over London's plans to continue the Anglo-Japanese alliance, which had been set to expire on July the 1st. The future of the alliance is likely to dominate next month's imperial conference. In that dear little town, in the old county down, it will linger way down in my heart. Though it never was grand, 
it is my fairy land, just a wonderful world set apart. Oh, my Ireland of dreams, you are with me, it seems, and I care not for fame or renown. Like the black sheep of old, I'll come back to the Little towns in the old county down sound so bucolic in the songs. But they were fiercely fought over in the first elections for the new Northern Ireland Parliament. Both Sir James Craig, leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, and Mr Raymond de Valera, leader of the Republican Sinn Féin Party, contested seats in Down. Unlike the elections for the new Parliament of Southern Ireland, where all candidates ran unopposed, it was a hard-fought campaign in Ulster. But ultimately unsuccessful for Mr de Valera, his election newspaper, somewhat confusingly called the Unionist targeted Protestant loyalists in rural districts, but is said to have had no impact other than to energise Unionist voters. Turnout was 88%. The Unionists won 40 out of 52 seats. And Sir James will be the first man in British history to be styled Prime Minister of Northern Ireland. In the United States, President Harding has signed into law the Emergency Quota Act, restricting immigration into America and limiting it to the same numbers and proportions of various foreign nationals as immigrated to the Republic over a decade ago. The Chief Justice of the United States is dead at the age of 75. Edward Douglas White upheld the constitutionality of conscription, struck down the Southern states' grandfather clauses used to disfranchise Negro voters, but sided with the majority on so-called separate but equal public facilities such as schools. Remarkably, the man who appointed Chief Justice White, President Taft, is said to be eager to succeed him as America's top judge. Sidney Katz, the former governor of Florida, has been indicted in U.S. District Court on charges of peonage, that is to say, holding Negroes in forced servitude. Mr. Katz is accused of using his power of pardon to free two black men from state prison and have them transferred to his plantation in Walton County as involuntary labor. In West Virginia, the situation in Mingo County has been deteriorating for some time as Blair Mountain mine owners and the United Mine Workers have squared off over the right to unionise. The trial of popular police chief Sid Hatfield for the murder of Albert Feltz of the legendary Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency further exacerbated the situation, but union miners have now launched a full-scale military-style assault on the non-union mines and in consequence Governor Morgan has placed Mingo County under martial law.
people. That's the infectious toe-tapping showstopper by UB Blake and Noble Sissel from a sensational new musical production called Shuffle Along, written and staged and performed by some of the most impressive Negro talent ever seen on The Great White Way. Both white and black theatre-goers are just wild about Shuffle Along, to the point that there were nightly traffic jams on 63rd Street in the hour before Curtain Up. It looks like it has settled into the court theatre for what will be a very long time. Just wild about Alfredo. Dr. Alfredo de Zayas has been sworn in as the fourth president of Cuba. Unlike his predecessors, he is not a battle-scarred soldier, but an intellectual with plans to give women the vote and to recover Cuban sovereignty over the U.S.-occupied Isle of Pines. Santo Domingo, as the former Dominican Republic is now known, also has a new leader. That's Rear Admiral Samuel Robeson, appointed by President Harding as America's military governor for the territory. Marie Curie has accomplished so much. In 1903, she became the first woman to win a Nobel Prize and eight years later joined the even more elite group of those who have won the Nobel Prize twice and in two different disciplines, physics and chemistry. She has done pioneering work on X-rays and radioactivity, a word Madame Curie coined, and her mobile radiography units did sterling work at field hospitals during the late World War. She has discovered many chemical elements, including polonium, which she named for her native Poland in hopes the publicity might free that land from the czarist yoke. And just last year, she founded the Curie Institute in Paris. Now to her many high honours, she can add the gold medal of America's National Institute of Social Sciences conferred upon Marie Curie at a ceremony in New York. The sycamores, the new mown hay, moonlight on the Wabash. But what about the sheer wonder of it? For weeks, Indiana newspapers have run advertisements proclaiming only the word wonder, accompanied by cryptic verses that betrayed no clue as to what was so wondrous. Now we know. The Taggart Baking Company of Indianapolis has launched a new bread called Wonder Bread. 
The name comes from Company Vice President Elmer Klein, who came up with it while attending the International Balloon Race at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Mr. Klein says he looked up at the multicolored balloons in the sky and was filled with wonder. Indeed, an image of red, yellow and blue balloons will grace the wrappers of the company's new bread. We shall watch with interest to see if wonder bread catches on. The first electrically propelled American ship, the Eclipse, has docked back in New York after a voyage of 26,500 miles, all powered by electricity. Franklin Lane served seven years as Secretary of the Interior and before that another seven years as Commissioner of the Interstate Commerce Commission. There were many Democrats who thought he had the makings of a president, but he suffered the disadvantage of having been born a subject of the British Crown on Prince Edward Island. Nevertheless, there were attempts to nominate him as Democrat vice presidential candidate for the 1904 race. Instead, his long years of service in far less prominent positions ruined Mr Lane. His health deteriorated and the costs of treatment at Dr Mayo's famous clinic in Minnesota drained his modest finances. He is dead at the age of 56 and has left no estate. And that's the way of the world. May 1921. A hundred years from today A hundred years from today Escape the quarantine by delving into fantastic fiction chosen and read by Mark Stein himself in Stein's Tales for Our Time. Thrillers, mysteries, science fiction, romance, tales that transcend genre, everything from classics to titles hidden in the upper shelves. Mark Stein Club members can listen to the full catalog of nearly three dozen Tales for Our Time. Hear them all by going to www.steinonline.com tfot. A postscript to a hundred years ago show a century ago on May the 18th, 1921, a man called Edward Everett Tanner III was born in Chicago. He wrote novels under the name Virginia Rowans and then fictional memoirs under the name Patrick Dennis. The first of them, Auntie Mame, was one of the biggest bestsellers of its day and spawned sequels, films, a Broadway musical and a hit song. But the ones that followed were pretty good too, including First Lady, My 30 Days Upstairs at the White House by Martha Dinwiddie Butterfield as told to Patrick Dennis about a very unaware wife of a robber baron who at the end of the 19th century steals the presidency for himself. Imagine that. And then... As is the way of these things, fashions changed and the book stopped selling and fell out of print, and Patrick Dennis wound up working as a butler for Ray Kroc, the presiding genius of McDonald's hamburgers. And because Edward Everett Tanner III used his real name for his butling, Ray Kroc had no idea he was employing the once famous author Patrick Dennis as the head of his domestic staff, which, come to think of it, sounds like the premise of a Patrick Dennis novel. Anyway, the obvious thing to do upon the occasion of his centenary would be to play the title song of the musical made for his biggest selling novel. You folks, the blues right out on May. You charm the 
bus right off of the But that's a bit too obvious for me, so here's a song from the other Patrick Dennis musical, Little Me, with Sid Caesar in multiple roles and a score by Cy Coleman and Carolyn Lee, uh, who, uh, if you heard our most recent episode of Mark Stein's Passing Parade uh, last weekend, you'll know are one of my favourite songwriting teams. Here's Barry Manilow with a take-home tune from the show. The joke at the time was that it was a song for recovering necrophiliacs. Pardon me, miss, but I've never done this with a real live girl. What could be harmful in holding an armful of real live Pardon me if your affectionate squeeze Fogs up my goggles and buckles my knees I'm simply drowned in the sight and the sound and the scent And the feel of a real life done this with a real live girl if i recall correctly mandy 
Mandy came and she gave without taking and he sent her away. So the evidence is inconclusive. But if one can get beyond that title, which really one can't, pardon me, miss, but I've never done this with a real live girl, is a fabulous Cy Coleman waltz and a Carolyn Lee lyric that sits on it uh, very appealingly. Pardon me if your affectionate squeeze fogs up my goggles and buckles my knees. I'm simply drowned in the sight and the sound and the scent and the feel of a real live girl. From a musical based on the book Little Me, the intimate memoirs of that great star of stage, screen and television, Belle Poitrine, as told to Patrick Dennis, as written by Patrick Dennis, author and butler, born 100 years ago. Uh, tomorrow, we shall have another of our Clubland Q&As. That's live around the planet at 4 p.m. North American Eastern, 9 p.m. British Summertime on Thursday. You'll have to work it out from there, wherever you are. Hope you'll swing by. Thank you for all your kind comments on the fourth birthday of the Mark Stein Club. And thank you, too, to all of you who've decided to re-up for a fifth year. Paul and Linda Northover are fellow Ontarians of mine and first-week founding members of the Mark Stein Club, and they write, we don't know how you managed to do it week in and week out, but keep pushing on that rope. Thank you, Paul and Linda. I wasn't quite sure what pushing on that rope meant in that context, or if it was any kind of compliment. Pushing on a string is a Keynesian term, almost exclusively confined to monetary policy. And pushing rope is a vulgar bit of vernacular we won't dwell on here, although operating on the same general principle as uh, Lord Keynes's uh, coinage. I thought it might be something to do with Lenin's view that, uh, that the capitalists will sell the commies the rope with which they will hang us. Um, Pushing a rope is fairly useless, unless, of course, you use it to propel yourself through the treetops like Tarzan, which I like to think is what we do here. Stay safe, stay free, push on. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. It's reserved.